Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everyone, today's episode is on murderous Marys. We were originally going to do a malicious Mary episode, and if you listen to our Bloody Mary episode, you know we already covered that Mary, but originally our episode was going to have a little legend, a little true crime, and then we realized the legend was long enough for his episode on its own, so he's pulled out the true crime. So today we're going to talk about some murderous Marys. I I shouldn't say I was surprised, but I was surprised with how many Marys throughout history committed horrendous crimes. Yes, same. I originally saw Mary Cotton, and then we saw another Mary, and then another Mary, and we were like, oh, these aren't just like run-of-the-mill murders. Like, these are pretty bad. Like, Yeah. (laughs) Murder's generally bad, but they're either generally bad, and then they have a high volume, or they're just truly heinous. And we even had to make some cuts because there's so many. Yeah, yeah. There was a long list of Marys. So we are going to start with Mary Cotton, and she's from the 1800s. So I said there's a wide variety of different Marys with different heinous crimes. So she was thought of as England's deadliest serial killer until the late 20th century. It's a pretty big title. Wow. Yeah. I mean, love when women are groundbreaking. Don't love when it's in this realm. Right, right. And she was born, get this, Halloween. So October 31st of 1832, which seems appropriate. Yeah. She was born in Low Morsley in Durham County in Northeast England. And some documentation on Mary's life is missing. So some of the core facts are disputed, like the exact date she was born, death certificates, that sort of thing. But I'd like to believe she was actually born on Halloween. Yeah, it feels right. But I also kind of don't want her to ruin it. Muddying up our just like spooky, good time, wholesome Halloween with her actual murder. You know, that's true. Yeah. And that actually might be a reason why it might be a made up day only because it seems too appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. So early life. She had a brother. His name was Robert. Mary's father was a coal miner and he was known to be very, very strict. She had a hard time making friends. And a lot of this, all these little pieces seem pretty common when you look at most serial killers, right? Just strict parents or no parents. Yeah. Kind of odd, hard to make friends, kind of a loner. In 1848, she was 16 years old. Mary leaves home to work as a nurse after her father dies in a mining accident. His body was returned to Mary's mother, whose name was Margaret, in a wheelbarrow. He was inside a sack that was stamped property of South Hetton Coal Company, which seems really, really sad. Woof. So within a year of Michael's death, Margaret marries a guy named George Stott. So in in 1851, Mary returns home to work as a dressmaker. In 1852, she marries William Mowbray. Between 1852 and 1864, her and William have eight to nine children. They're busy. We're not sure of the actual fact, but that is a lot of children. Yeah. They move around a few times. My guess is probably for more room for all of these children. And then in 1856, they finally settle in Hendon. All but three of their children die of gastric fever, which is terribly sad. 
Yeah. But let's let's look at what gastric fever is. So from what we could find, we could find an exact illness that has the name gastric fever. It seems like it's just characterized by someone dying when they have a fever and they're vomiting, which also could be typhoid. Yeah, that seems like a really broad diagnosis. It sounds like it's just symptoms, right? Like, yeah, it's like saying like you died of a headache and it's like, okay, but that's not why you died. That's what you experienced before you died. Right, right. So and again, back then in the 1800s, I'm sure that they they didn't have the best medical system as we do now. And so trying to actually diagnose why someone died. And honestly, someone recovering from some of the simple things was a lot harder. That's all but three again of her children. And that's, that's really, really sad. So Lindsay, do you want to talk about where this I don't know, sort of typical family goes a little differently. Yeah. So let's start with the fact that William took out life insurance policies on the remaining family members and there was a life insurance policy out of William. I feel like that's <laughs> nowadays when you see someone changing life insurance, you're like, who's who are they going to murder? Yeah. Someone's about to die. But I mean, like, it's it's a commonplace thing. No. If, if anyone ever calls on my life insurance, they killed me, Lindsay. No, I mean, like having life insurance. Like once we got on mortgage it was like now we have to have life insurance because we don't want the other person to like lose the house this probably sounds really stupid but do you think of life insurance in the 1800s no i also did like some math on what the life insurance was but we'll get there in a moment and also like can you even imagine like how often people are dying in the 1800s it's a better risk of like that they're gonna live you know what i mean like people are dropping like flies but anywho 1864 william dies of gastric fever So now we're up to about seven people who have died of gastric fever. And again, for fever and stomach issues. Then, same year, two more children die of gastric fever. A lot of death in one family with the same issues. Yeah, it's almost like there's like one common person. You know what I mean? And so Mary gets life insurance money and they get 35 pounds. And so in U.S. dollars, that's $48.67 let's adjust for inflation. So with inflation, it's it's just shy of 4,500 pounds and a touch over $6,200 in US dollars, which is not a lot of money, especially for all of those people who have died. No, it doesn't seem like it. Yeah. But so at this point, Mary has one child left and it's a daughter. And so she leaves her daughter with her mother and she goes to work as a nurse in a hospital in Sunderland. And I just want to like make a note that at this point, she's been a nurse. She's been a dressmaker. And I love the versatility, but I find it alarming that like she's switching so much already. That's a big career change. It's polar opposites if you think about it. Well, and also like at 16, she went to work as a nurse. What was your first job, Amanda? Uh Oh, no. My, my technical first job, I modeled for an alternative clothing company. <laughs> and it's very embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, okay. And to interact with people? I did need to hear that, but I also want, like, your first job where you were, like, going and doing a thing outside of modeling and doing that thing. I was a computer salesperson. Okay. Okay. So you worked retail? Yeah. I was the survey person in the mall. Right. Sounds amazing. It was something. It was an experience. But like, these are 16 year old jobs. Like you could work at a snowball stand. I just realized that's regional. It's shaved ice everywhere else. But like you could work at in food. You can work in retail. But the idea of a 16 year old nurse makes me very scared. 
I should have told you I was a surgeon. You know, just a casual 16-year-old surgeon. But anywho. I thought you were born a lawyer. I was not born a lawyer. I accrued a mountain of debt (laughs) to be able to say that I'm a Bard attorney. Uh, But okay, so it's 1864 and she's working as a nurse in Sunderland after dropping her kid off with her mom. So 1865, she marries one of her patients, George Ward. And that's why they're not allowed to date their patients now. Are they not? I don't know. Is that unethical? Yeah, a doctor? It's unethical. But what if you marry them after you were already their doctor? I think as long as you're not treating them, we can phone a friend for this later. <laughs> yeah. Look, I've watched Grey's Anatomy. I, I know enough, right? Anywho. Okay. So 1866. Amanda, guess who dies? Is it her new husband? Yeah, it's her new husband. And from the sources that I've seen, like, it's unclear how he died. But let's just go ahead and assume it's also gastric fever. So we're up to 10 people in Mary's adult life who have died. And no one's like, huh, this is weird. Well, keep in mind, she's moving around and it's like the 1800s. It's not like people are keeping like good records. But like her mom's watching her kid. Wouldn't she be like, oh, my gosh, are any of your people that you marry or any of their siblings ever going to make it? I mean, hold on. We'll get there. We'll get there. So surprise, surprise, she collects more insurance money. Then she goes and works as a housekeeper to a widower named James Robinson. And she's there to take care of his children as well. And so she'd been there just a few weeks. One of his kids dies of gastric fever. Strange. So 1867, she goes to visit her mom, who I am assuming is having this conversation like, it's super weird that everybody dies of like stomach problems when they're around you. Like this seems suspect, right? Yeah. Her mother dies a week after she visits her. She was very upset about that that conversation. I'm sure she was. So she takes her daughter back to live at the Robinson home with her. In the April of 1867, Mary's daughter and two of the Robinson children die. So that's, we're at 15 people now. That's insane. Insane. That August, she marries James Robinson. She must be very charming. And they have two children together, but only one survives infancy. How is she having this many children? She's a very fertile gal. My goodness. And she's active, I would imagine. Get it. So 1869, Mary just just like having a casual conversation with her third husband, James, and she's like, you should get life insurance. And she keeps doing this. She keeps just like bringing it up. Like, you should get life insurance. You should get life insurance. And he's like, this is a bit odd. Then he realizes that she'd been stealing from him and that she stole 50 pounds from him, which is more than she even got for her first husband's life insurance policy, just to understand like how much that would mean. And then she racks up 60 pounds in debt. Then he finds out that she had been making the kids pawn household items to give her money. And one of the things that I always kind of wondered as I read this was, what is she doing with all this money? Because I didn't hear about her having like a gambling problem or like some type of vice that would be very expensive or that like she always wanted to dress in like the finest clothes or anything like that. So I just saw that she was just like a dragon on top of a bunch of gold, just trying to amass wealth, which I mean, that's not altogether surprising when she grew up from what it seemed like relatively not very well off. And then her mother's financial situation drastically changed when her father died. So like I can see like wanting to accumulate wealth, but it seems like that is her like primary mission in life. So James kicks her out and she's homeless. So from 1870 to mid-1871, during this time, she meets Frederick Cotton, who's a widower, after one of her friends introduces her to him. Then, pretty soon after, Frederick's youngest child and his sister, presumably the one who introduced him to her, they both die. 
So we're at 17 people. That September, Mary and Frederick get married. Although she's still married to James, mind you. Right. He just kicked her out. Yeah. He just kicked her out. And she was like, I can get married again. What's another marriage? So then Mary and Frederick have a son. During this time, Mary finds out that her former lover, Joseph Natteras, wasn't married anymore. And she was like, hmm, interesting. So she convinces her fourth husband, who was her second husband at the time, if you will, to move where Joseph Natteras is living so she can start back up her fling with him. I mean, obviously, she's not like explaining that to him. She's not like, can we move? Because I would love to have a side piece. She's like, we should move to this area. And then the reason is, is because her and Joseph are having a side thing. I mean, seems like everyone just does what she wants. Yeah, I I would love to have whatever gumption or charisma she has that makes people just blindly do the things she asks. With the exception of James Robinson, who was like, get out. And to be honest, like his suspicions saved his life. So now we're at the end of 1871 to the end of 1872. Frederick and two more children are dead. And so we're at 20 people now dead, which this all this is all like a really quick turnaround, right? It's only a few years. Yeah, if you really look at it. Yeah. And it's especially quick thinking of how many children are dead, because nowadays, if any one person had this many children around them dead, I would love to think that we would be like, this is like the reddest of flags. So Mary receives another insurance payout and Joseph moves in as a wink, wink lodger into their home. It's not surprising. He dies and he leaves all his belongings to her, but he doesn't have much. So Mary, with her vast career history, she's now the assistant coroner. That's perfect. It's perfect. Doesn't it makes me very uncomfortable. So she begins a relationship with a man named John Quick Manning and then gets pregnant by him. And she tells an official sometime during this her pregnancy that she couldn't marry him because her seven-year-old stepson, Charles Edward Cotton, and then she said, I won't be troubled long, just like casually. And then there's another person who she's talking to who's a parish official. And he asked her to take care of a woman who had smallpox. Because keep in mind, like people knew that she was a nurse. She has children with her. Like she's working as the coroner. So she seems like she has like some medical knowledge to her. And she said if she was going to do that, she would need to send her stepson, Charles, to a workhouse. And so the parish official who she's talking to is like, no, like you don't need to do that. You don't need to give up your stepson in order to do this. And then she starts complaining about having to support the kid. And she had made the complaint several more times about having to take care of him. And on one of those times, she said that she could have been married to her late husband's brother, but for the child and said, but quote, he won't live long. He shall go like all of the rest of the Cotton family. And so the parish official says, you don't mean to say that a healthy boy like him will die. And then her response was, oh, yes. So for once, someone's like, hmm, how peculiar. This is strange. This lady's crazy. And then surprise, surprise, after the last conversation she had had with that parish official, five days later, Charles dies. That puts us at 21 deaths around one woman. One woman. Most of them children. So the parish official who she had spoken with notified law enforcement, and they asked the doctor to hold off on writing the death certificate. Mary didn't know that the death certificate hadn't been issued, and she tried to collect Charles's life insurance. And the official that she spoke with was like, something is not right here. Thankfully, 
And he kept pressing until there was an inquest. And from what I understood, an inquest is kind of like a grand jury in America. So she said that the official was bitter with her because she had denied his sexual advances. And the jury was like, "Mm, no, this doesn't taste right. She's fine. And they don't press formal charges. But a newspaper looked at it and went, huh, that is strange. And they looked up her past and they discovered all of these deaths. And also keep in mind, she had been moving with different last names. So... Right. So it's hard to follow. Yeah, it's hard to follow. And Mary's such a common name. So it's kind of easy to see how you couldn't piece it together at first. Well, and think about the 1800s trying to locate someone on paper, right? You can't look it up any other way in different cities. I could totally understand why. Oh, my gosh. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so newspaper prints a story about Mary and her past. And so then law enforcement goes to the doctor who had kept samples from Charles and they test positive for arsenic. So let's talk a little bit about arsenic poisoning. Gastric fever, which again is fever, stomach issues, including vomiting. Okay, very easy. Has very similar symptoms to arsenic poisoning. And so during this time, arsenic was used in a lot of household products. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But it was really easy that people could ingest it. And different people would be susceptible in different volumes. So the reason that people could have been dying at different times was because a smaller dose could kill one person, whereas another person might have an oddly high tolerance for arsenic. So there's two different types of arsenic poisoning. One is acute and the other is chronic. Acute is one big dose. Chronic is repeated small doses. For acute arsenic poisoning, symptoms include nausea, vomiting, burning of the mouth and throat, severe abdominal pains, circulatory collapse, and death. So you could see how this could be gastric fever, if you will. And then for chronic arsenic poisoning, you would slowly lose your strength. You'd have bowel problems. You would have pigmentation issues and your skin would kind of scale because at this point you're going to be getting malnourished, right? Because you're getting sick all the time. Paralysis and convulsion, degeneration of fatty tissue, anemia, and then also streaks across the fingernails, which is apparently like a very common symptom, if you will, of chronic poisoning. So if you think anybody in your life is poisoning you with arsenic, one, go away from them. But two, take a look for some streaks on your fingernails. And it's nowadays, it's typically found in tests with hair, nails, or nail or urine. So, but then they checked stomach contents. So the bodies of Joseph Nataras and the two other cotton children were exhumed and they were all determined to have arsenic in their stomach as well. She almost got away with it. She almost got away with it. She really did. But I mean, to be honest, it didn't seem as though she was going to stop until she was stopped. Like you mentioned, I don't see what her goal was. Because I, I can see when, you know, it's the first husband, maybe, maybe the second. But like, it kept going. All these children. And what you said, you're not getting a lot per child either. So I don't know if it was like a monetary goal that she had set or maybe it was like a death count. But so she's charged with Charles' murder. In 1873, in January, remember, she was pregnant with John Quick Manning's child. So she gives birth to her 13th child. And they didn't want to start her trial until she'd given birth. So in March, the defense argues that many people have died from inhaling arsenic powder from wallpaper. And at the time, there was arsenic in wallpaper. But the idea that 21 people around her died. Right. Unless she was wallpapering every new house she went to. Yeah, and she was covered the people in wallpaper and maybe making them eat it. But the prosecution's evidence was like one, just 21 people. 
And two, the doctor also testified Charles had been chronically poisoned. So he kept receiving a similarly sized dose of arsenic over a long period of time. It clearly wasn't just like, oh, maybe he licked some wallpaper. So she's convicted and sentenced to death. On March 24th of 1873, she was executed. It was kind of a gruesome execution because the trap door underneath where she was, it wasn't positioned high enough. So her neck didn't break. So the executioner had to like press down on her shoulders. Oh, no. To break her neck. And it took like three minutes. I mean, she kind of deserved that. But it's horrible. Yeah, I mean, she absolutely deserved it. But horrible. But I mean, yeah, that's that's Mary Cotton who, woof. 21 people, mostly children, couple husbands thrown in. Yeah, that's that's intense. So that was a pretty tragic tale. Let's move on. We have more. Yeah, don't we always. So we're moving up in history to the 1950s. And the next Mary is Mary Bell. And she was born in 1957. So as usual, tragically, her parents weren't that great. When she was born, her mother said, take that thing away from me. Right. And her her mom's name was Betty, by the way. So Betty tried to give Mary away, but Mary's aunt stopped it. Mary's mother was only 17 when she had Mary. Several family members said that her mother had attempted to murder her when she was a toddler, but she tried to make it look like an accident, which is really sad. However, this is her accident. She accidentally threw her out a window. How do you accidentally throw a child out of a window? You don't. Uh, She damaged her prefrontal cortex. And that's also where decision making happens in your brain. So from that on, like it it explains what happens after this. The other way that she accidentally almost killed herself, but, you know, her mother almost killed her was she gave her too many sleeping pills. Which zero sleeping pills is the number of sleeping pills a child should have, right? Do they make child sleeping pills? They make melatonin gummies. Yeah, that's different, right? That's a vitamin. It is different. It is, yes. Yeah. Another way was she choked her. And then something she had Munchausen by proxy. Her mother offered her to clients starting at as young as four years old. And she was sexually assaulted. I don't even, I, I feel like something had to have happened to the mom to make her brain broken as well. Yeah, I mean, any child who went through this, you could see how they could hurt others. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just saying, like, you could see how a person like this could do really terrible things, especially like, and we'll we'll get to it in a second, but how old she was when she started doing things. Right. Well, and this one's technical, too, because her brain was technically not correct anymore. It had gotten damaged for decision making. So that that makes up for why her decision making was so terrible. Yeah. When you when you combine that with really horrific abuse, that's repeated. So let's go to her father real quick. His name was Billy and he married Betty after Mary was born and he was considered a lifelong criminal. So she didn't really get dealt the best hand. Now, let's talk about Mary's development after, you know, her mom tried to kill her several times. At five, her friend was run over by a bus. That hurts my heart. That's just so horrible. Not only is her parents just the worst, then like her friend dies. Her behavior gets a little weird here. She attempted to strangle other children. She put out a cigarette on a little girl's cheek. I don't know why she had a cigarette. That's a thing. She had dark hair and bright blue eyes, just to give you a picture of what she looked like too. Her friend, Norma Bell, who wasn't related, so just a friend, not a relative, just with the same last name. She held a little girl down 
while Mary tried to suffocate her and she was also filling her mouth with sand. Have you ever gotten like just like a little bit of sand in your mouth? Like a, awful. Could you imagine just someone like packing it in? Like I feel like you'd never be the same. It's like an exfoliation inside of your mouth. The fact that she was doing this kind of stuff and she was still in school. Nowadays, I feel like children would be removed from school upon the first thing on this list. Like any one of these things would have gotten them expelled from school. Yeah, that's a lot. And also this other little girl that was helping her. I mean, look, Norma's not so great either. Yeah. When I read about this too, like a parent teacher conference for this, but teachers said that she was very smart. However, she didn't have empathy. I mean, that's pretty clear. Well, yeah, but I mean, just imagine that conversation. It's just a weird thing to imagine. I I don't imagine her parents were the sort that went to parent-teacher conferences. But just to go back for a moment. So on May 11th of 1968, Mary was playing with another boy. He was three years old and they were on top of an air raid shelter. And then he fell in and was injured. His parents were like, oh, accidents happen, which I mean, a three-year-old shouldn't be playing there anyways, but yeah, it totally could have been an accident. The following day, May 12th, 1968, three moms went to the police to say that Mary had choked their daughters. Okay. Okay. Good on them. Maybe go to the police as soon as she does it. I think they probably heard that story and were like, okay, yeah, this is weird. Same little girl. And then other people probably came forward and were like, yeah, she did it to my kid too. So let's talk about now the first murder. So Mary strangled Martin Brown on May 25th, 1968. So it's that same month. And she had convinced him to come to an abandoned house with her saying that she'd give him candy. He was only four years old at the time. And it's also important to note at this point too, she's 11. Yeah. She's still a baby. So she she's still a kid, but she's old enough where it would be strange if she was hanging out with a four-year-old. Right. That That is weird. But also you could think like, oh, that's just her sibling. Also to like hear my parents talk about like growing up in this time, life was very much like come home when the streetlights come on. She wasn't like a danger that any of them could have conceptualized. No, no. So Mary actually went back and brought her friend Norma, but Martin's body had already been discovered. Unfortunately, they didn't really investigate much because they had found an empty bottle of painkillers. So what the investigators thought was maybe it was just an accident and he took someone's pills, you know, got a hold of a bottle, probably thought it was candy, ate them and then died in this house. They didn't really look into why he was there, who he was there with, nothing. So ultimately, this little boy's death was just ruled an accident. A few days after he died, Mary went to Martin's house and asked to see him. Don't like this. Martin's mom explained, I'm sorry, he died. Mary clarified, no, 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 no. I want to see Martin's body in the coffin. Can you imagine how much you might want to slap a child if they said that to you? So she held back from that, at least, but she did slam the door in her face because that's not a thing you ask someone. Very true. Yeah. So now Mary and her little friend Norma, I feel like that that could be like a a really creepy book or Mary and Norma. Yeah. Mary and Norma. I liked the name Norma until this. Norma's a bad seed. Yeah. Norma is a bad seed. Like if your sidekick's down for this, rut row. We have to see what happened to Norma. Maybe we'll add it to one of the digests later. But I, I feel like Norma, I know Mary's probably the, the worst one, but I, I just feel like we got to keep an eye on Norma here. So they both break into Martin's nursery school and they vandalized it and basically put on there, 
that Arn was killed and that they would definitely kill again. So police thought it was a prank because why wouldn't it be a prank? That's actually infuriating. That's the weirdest prank. It's the weirdest prank, but also that they're just like, someone would be playing a joke on this four-year-old dead boy. Yeah. No, that that's not a thing. However, the nursery school had been broken into before, but I feel like that's much a much different level. Breaking in and spilling some finger paints is way different than confessing to murder on the walls of a pre-K. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what the nursery school did then is they installed an alarm system and they had caught Mary and Norma a few nights later. So since they were just loitering, the police didn't do anything. They were just like, no, it's just kids hanging out. Or they were about to break in again. No, no, it couldn't be. Two little girls, they wouldn't do anything wrong. No, they're little ladies. So Mary also bragged about killing Martin to her classmates. Could you even imagine like you're 11? I don't know. I was really awkward. I'm still awkward. I mean, still awkward, but like I've like grown into my body now and I wasn't grown into my body then and didn't really have a sense of like who I was. So it was just just as awkward as I could be. So like you're just like living this awkward middle school life and like one of your classmates unsolicited comes up and is like, I killed a four year old. Like I don't need this trauma. Well, and she was known to lie and exaggerate things. So everyone's like, "Okay, sure you did, Mary didn't believe her also just like are any alarm bells ringing about the girl who exaggerates so often and so frequently and so intensely that when she confesses to murder people don't believe her well i mean if an 11 year old came up to you and said i murdered someone it's probably it's a hard pill to swallow police immediately maybe it's the true crime in me but no you confess to murder at any age other than an age that couldn't contemplate death Like if a three-year-old was like, I murdered like so-and-so, I would be like, why do you think that? Because like they could have made some like child inferences. Like I wouldn't share my grape juice with them and that's where they die. And you're like, no, you didn't kill anybody. But okay, so let's move on to the second murder. Which shouldn't have even happened. It shouldn't have happened because they confessed with the exception of like walking their little like tween selves into the police station and confessing. They made it pretty damn clear. So the end of July of 1968, on the 31st, Mary and fucking Norma killed Brian Howell by strangulation after luring him away with candy. So he was only three years old. That's so sad. And candy, when you think about it now, like, right, that's what everyone always says. If someone offers you candy, no. But also, like, it's never, you don't really think about, like, kids hurting kids. No. Well, nowadays you have to think that too, because a lot of horrible people use kids to lure other kids. The world is a sick place. It is. So they carved an M into his abdomen. Some sources say that the M that's carved in looks like it was originally an N, but then it was changed to an M by a different carver. So maybe Norma carved the N and then Mary put the M or maybe like vice versa. Yeah, that's horrible. There was scratches on his thighs and they also mutilated his genitals. Mary and Norma offered to help Brian's sister when she was looking for him. And that's like a new level of sick because now they're kind of reveling in the pain that it's causing people for him to be missing. Well, that's a common thing now, too, is people inserting themselves into the investigation, right? Mm-hmm. Mary and Norma suggested that they look near the concrete blocks that hid his body because I'm assuming like there's cinder block kind of things. His sister's response was like, he won't be over there. So they're like trying to take her to the body so they can see her find him. And his sister's like, no, he wouldn't be over there. So she doesn't go there and they continue to search. And so 
when his body eventually is found, when they're examining his body, it's pretty clear from the injuries that were sustained that the killer was a child because of the lack of force. When interviewed by police, Mary was evasive and Norma was unnecessarily excited. And Mary made up a story about seeing an eight-year-old carrying broken scissors away from that area. And at that point, the mutilation hadn't been shared. So they were like, hmm, why do you know that scissors would be necessary? Police pressed on both Norma and Mary, and they both implicated themselves. Mary admitted to being there, but she blamed everything on Norma. And so, I mean, could it have just been Norma this time around? Perhaps, but because she had killed Martin by herself, it kind of suggests that it likely was Mary with an assist from Norma. Right. But so both of them were charged and trials were set. After she was arrested, the court appointed a psychiatrist and they said that Bell exhibited classic elements of psychopathy. And the judge agreed. Wow. So Bell was found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced at Her Majesty's pleasure, which basically means that she was sentenced for an indefinite amount of time because of just the heinous acts that, that she had done. It makes sense that she would have a heavy sentence, but that seems like an unjust sentence. And this was in England, which is why that she was sentenced in a different way than it would be in America. In America, we have clear-ish sentencing guidelines. But so Norma was considered an unwilling accomplice and that she was just under a bad influence. So she was acquitted. Amanda, even during your most impressionable time in your life, do you think you would have went along with anything like this? Absolutely not. No. Absolutely not. Bad influence or not, like, you're part of it. But so, disgustingly, Betty, Mary's mother, she kept selling stories about her daughter to the tabloids, and she would, like, forge, like, journal entries and different writings to support the claims about her having psychopathy. So, Mary served 12 years in prison, which is a pretty short amount of time, considering she murdered two toddlers. Right. She was released when she was only 23 in 1980. Oh, gosh. But so after she was released from prison, she was granted anonymity. And so four years after she was released, she had her own daughter and they lived in her hometown for a bit. And then while she was still living anonymously, she contributed to her biography and the government didn't want her to profit from the contribution. So they tried to block its publication. Mary's daughter didn't even know about her mother's crimes until she herself was 14. And they only found out because a tabloid had found Mary's husband and tracked them down and then published the stories to talk about them. How horrible would that be? That would be pretty bad. But I also think that there's a much different feeling I think I would have about if my mother killed someone when they were a child versus as an adult, right? And especially, look, I'm not saying that like anything excuses what Mary did, but the, the, what she was living with, the amount of like pain and suffering and torture, she may not have understood, you know? But so, yeah. Well, she didn't because of the injury too. Yeah. And so Mary was able to keep her identity a secret and a court actually ruled that like their names wouldn't be released for her, her daughter and her granddaughter. So that they wouldn't be living under the stigma of what she had done. So our last Mary for the evening is Mary Laurie Tackett. And it's just like a little bit of a twist. She actually went by Laurie. But her legal first name was Mary, so she counts. It does. Laurie was born in October of 1974 in Madison, Indiana. So her mother was a fundamentalist Pentecostal Christian. And her father was a factory worker who had 
two felony convictions from the 60s. They both fought pretty often. It seemed like her father was maybe abusive. And her mother was like very religiously strict. At one point, one of her friends got a Ouija board. Her friend's name was Hope Rippy. We'll talk about her in a little bit. But her father got a Ouija board. And so the girls were playing with a Ouija board. And when Laurie's mother found out, she went over there and demanded that they both burn it and exercise the house. And as we've talked about in an episode from many moons ago, perhaps you should not burn a Ouija board. Right. She was wrong there. She was wrong. Then in 1989... Laurie's mother found out that she was changing into jeans while she was at school and she freaked out and she tried to strangle her. Social workers became involved and Mary's parents agreed to unannounced visits by social workers. Laurie pretended to be possessed by the spirit of, quote, Deanna the Vampire, which like what a badass vampire name. Deanna. Of all the names in the world, like Deanna. She had such an odd past. She did. She did. And so, yeah, Laurie began hurting herself. In 1991, Laurie started dating a girl who was also into self-harm. By that March, her parents discovered what she was doing, checked her into a hospital, and she was prescribed medication and she was released. After her release, about two days later, she cut her wrist pretty deeply and she was taken to the hospital and then she went into the psych ward. She was diagnosed and then she confessed that she had experienced hallucinations since she was little. After they get her symptoms under control, they discharge her again. By September of 1991, she's dropped out of high school. That October, she moved out of her family's house and began living with friends in the Louisville area. And that's when she meets Melinda Loveless for the first time. And so we're going to talk a lot about Melinda. So remember that name. Melinda and Hope. Melinda and Hope so far. And so by that December, she moved back to Madison because her father told her he'd buy her a car if she moved back. So she was like, okay. But she still spent most of her time in Louisville and New Albany with her new friend, Melinda. So let's switch gears and we're going to talk a little bit about Melinda. There are allegations that Melinda was sexually abused by her father. He was also very abusive to her mother and would sexually assault her mother while she and her two sisters were home. Melinda shared a bed with her father until she was 14. Horrible. And her mother attempted suicide several times. So it seems like she has a very intense history of abuse and and like repeated abuse. Yeah. So we're going to shift into Melinda's timeline, and then the two will merge in a moment. In 1990, Melinda began to date a girl named Amanda. So by that fall, their relationship began to fall apart. And Melinda blamed another girl named Shonda Scherer. It's important to note Shonda is several years younger than Amanda and Melinda. Amanda had met Shonda early in the school year when they had both gotten into fights and became friends in detention. She was like a very breakfast club kind of way to meet. Yeah. So that October, Amanda and Shonda attended a school dance and it seems like they went together and Melinda found them and confronted them. Melinda started dating someone else who was older, but she was still jealous of Amanda and Shonda. So she also saw them attend a festival together. So she keeps seeing them out together. And Melinda starts to talk about killing Shonda and she even threatened her. So by that November, Shonda's parents moved her to a Catholic school and Shonda and Amanda begin to drift apart because they're different schools now. So all of these people that Lindsay just described, we're going to put all of them together now to talk about what happened. And this horrible event took place in 1992. And we're going to start on January 10th. So we already brought up Hope Rippy and Lori Tackett, whose name is Mary. They had another friend named Tony Lawrence. And the three of them drove Lori's car to Melinda Lovelace's house. And again, she lived in New Albany. 
Tony and Hope were friends of Lori's, but they actually didn't know Melinda. Sounds like they had just heard of her or, you know, heard Lori talking about her. When they arrived, they were told by Melinda that she wanted to scare Shonda with a knife. And Melinda told them that she very much disliked Shonda for being a copycat and stealing her girlfriend. It all sounds very young adolescent anger, like, oh, she's copying off me. Like, yeah, who cares? As an adult, I'm like, oh, I have that same top. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's fair. I, I'm still, you know, you know where this is going. She's going to go scare a younger girl with a knife because they're a copycat and stole her girlfriend to, you know, her friend and to two technical strangers. And everyone's like, okay. Right. And I I understand that they think, yeah, we're just going to scare her. But still, who does that? Who wastes their time? I think as a teenager, me in that age range didn't have time for that. No. Seems silly, especially someone that I didn't know. I wouldn't care who was a poser or who was, you know, copying them. Yeah. I'd say get a new girlfriend. I don't care. I'd also be like, we're not friends, so I have no emotional stake in you. So like if someone has made you mad, that's your beef, not mine. Yeah. I'd rather go do something else. So anyways. Hope drove to Shonda's house and arrived right before it was dark. Melinda told Hope and Tony to go to the door, introduce themselves as friends of Amanda's, and invite Shonda to come with them to go see her. So, hey, we're friends of your girlfriend. Come with me to go see her. We're also going to be taking you to something called the Witch's Castle. That's where Amanda will be waiting for you. Shonda declined because her parents were still awake, and she asked them, hey, why don't you just come back around midnight? They'll be asleep. We can go hang out. So while they waited, the girls went to a punk show, waited for midnight. I heard other random things ensued at this show, but that's not part of the story. So they went back to Shonda's house around 1230 a.m. So that puts us on January 11th. Melinda said she couldn't wait to kill Shonda on the car ride over, but also said that she wanted to have sex with her and intimidate her with the knife. So lots of mixed signals there. Yeah, Tony refused to go get Shonda. I feel like Tony knew something was up. And so Lori and Hope went instead. Melinda then went in the back seat and hid under a blanket. So when Shonda entered the car, she wouldn't know anyone else was in there. Shonda was actually a little hesitant at first, but she was like, "Okay, yeah, let's go. Melinda put the knife to her throat when she entered the car and then they headed to the witch's castle, which I was like, what is the witch's castle? (laughs) What I saw online was that it was a ruined stone house and some other people referred to it as Mistletoe Falls and it's in like an isolated area overlooking the river. Okay. So, you know, like people could technically drive by it, but it would be hard to see. Sounds like a lot of like teenagers go to hang out there. So I'm sure you had something in Maryland where it's just this random place that people go hang out. No, not that was like abandoned. Like I, as a teenager, hung out in an airport hangar that one of my friend's dads had. See, that's weird. That that counts. That counts. I guess they had raves. It was really cool. But yeah, but it wasn't like an abandoned thing. And like my parents dropped me off there. Like they knew where I was. There's there's not like I, that I've encountered an abandoned house in the back of the woods where all the kids hung out. We didn't have woods. Oh, but we did have weird golf course areas. And one had like this little um, island. We called it Duck Island because it only ducks lived there. Okay. And if the water wasn't too high, there was some rocks that you could like skip onto to get to the island. It's a tiny lake. Interesting. This is like abandoned golf courses, you said? No, it wasn't abandoned. Like it was just no one went over there like in the evening. So it was cool to just go over there without the creepy golfer men. I mean, fair. Fascinating. Interesting, right? Did you get to hang out with ducks, though? 
Oh, yeah. You know, I love ducks. That's why they follow you now. They know. You're their people. They know. If you ever hear ducks in the background of a recording, it's because ducks come to my front door and scream. Yeah, because Amanda feeds them. They come to her for food. So once Shonda entered the car, Melinda ordered her to tell the truth about stealing her girlfriend or have her throat slit. From what I understand from a couple of the different accounts throughout when they talk about the crime. One of the girls said she was crying. She was trying her best to answer the questions, but she was really scared, understandably. Once there, they bound her arms and legs with rope. Shonda again was crying and the girl started to get nervous because there was car lights. So they were at the witch's castle. People could still drive by. So they were like, okay, let's leave so we don't get seen. So they took her to a place closer to Lori's house and they went to what's described as a garbage dump and it's in like a forested area. So it'd be hard to see what was going on there. Tony and Hope stayed in the car during this, this part. Melinda and Lori made Shonda strip. Then they beat her. Melinda first beat her with her fists and then she slammed her face down on her knee. She also tried to slash her throat, but the knife that she had was too dull. So then this is when Hope comes out. Hope comes out of the car to help hold her down. And in some of the things that I read later on after all this went down, Hope said that basically they were making her do this. I don't quite understand that part, but I don't know if it was like more like peer pressure. It's just terrible. I mean, to be honest, I would be afraid of somebody who was doing this. That's true. That's true. Like I especially if like I was in their car and I didn't necessarily know where I was like I don't think I could do this, but I do see how she could be scared into thinking that she had to. Right, right. And remember, Hope and Tony didn't necessarily even know Melinda, but they did know Laurie. Yes. So she helps hold her down. Melinda and Laurie then take turns stabbing her in the chest. Then they strangled her with a rope and then they took her in the trunk and they said she's dead. And they they went back to Lori's house. So Shonda was actually still alive at this time and she was screaming in the trunk. So what happened next is Lori went out with a paring knife and stabbed her more. And then she went back in the house to clean up. What's interesting about that, though, is like, I'm sure you've seen a paring knife. They're maybe, what, three inches long. They're very short. But if you went into a kitchen and that's the knife you picked, you pick that knife on purpose. You'd pick the tiniest knife that would not kill. Right. Like that's not I mean, like given the right area stabbed, it would kill someone. But if you were seeking to just torture, that is the knife you would pick. Absolutely. Yeah. If they wanted her dead, they would have grabbed the biggest knife. Right. You always see in all the horror movies, they grab the giant knife off the counter. This wasn't the case. So while they were inside, Lori then read the girl's futures, did like a little reading there. Then around 2.30ish in the morning, Melinda and Lori left and they were going for a drive. The other two girls, so Tony and Hope, they stayed in the bedroom, so Lori's room. And both of them at this point thought, no, Shonda has to be dead, right? Lori's dad came into the room at one point and asked where Lori was. And they just said with Melinda, which already that's weird. Why would you leave some of your friends at your house and leave? Yeah. I mean, also, I would have been like, I got to go. Like, I got to get out of here. Yeah. Well, it's the middle of the night, too. I'm sure like with curfew and stuff. I don't I don't know if this I, I assume every city has some sort of curfew for underage kids. But do they enforce it? Really? I mean, ours did not enforce a curfew. 
there was the restrictions on provisional licenses, right? But there wasn't like, oh, you have to be home by 12 o'clock or you're going to get like a misdemeanor or whatever or a fine or something like that. No, I don't think they'd actually like do anything. But I would remember always being like just nervous that they were going to be annoying about us being out. So they thought basically that Lori and Melinda were just going to go and burn the dead body. However, during this time, Shonda again was still alive and what they described as making crying and gurgling noises. So Lori stopped the car and then beat her with a tire iron. Then they went back to Lori's house. And by this time, it's near morning. I couldn't find an exact time that they estimated, but near morning. Hope asked what happened with Shonda. Lori told her about the torture and then she laughed. The girls woke up Lori's mom as they were talking and she yelled at Lori for being out so late and for bringing girls back to the house. I mean, fair. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. It's almost morning. Wait till she finds out what she has to actually yell at her about. Right. So then everyone gets back in the car. Lori then takes the girls to a burn pile that was near her house. And she's like, I'm going to show you Shonda. And Tony refused to look. She's like, I'm not going to deal with this. Hope then sprays Shonda with Windex on one account. And she says, you're not looking so hot now, are you? And at this time, she is still alive. So she's been beaten. She's been stabbed multiple times. And then she's been beaten with a tire iron and she's still alive. So here's what I don't understand is that because I've seen in accounts too where they have that quote that Hope said, that just doesn't sound like a person to me who's too scared to be there. Absolutely not. No, there's a lot of different accounts that I was able to find in certain articles. And it's hard to differentiate what was happening then versus later on as adults when they're recounting what happened, which would be years and years later. So there is a lot of information out here. And this is just a basic timeline of what happened. There's a lot more detail. So then they went to a gas station and they bought a two liter and they filled it with gasoline. Then they drove to, it's called Lemon Road, and they carried Shonda in a blanket to a field. It's like a gravel road and then there's a field near it. And they carried her in a blanket. So Lori told Hope to pour the gasoline on Shonda. Again, she uses the term, she made me pour gasoline. I think no one can make you do that. And later on, there's an interview with her as an adult. And she says, I can't say that I would have done anything differently because I just don't know what I could have done. I was like, you you didn't have to. And, and I know where you were coming from, Lindsay, where you were like, well, it's, it's a scary situation. And I, I can imagine being scared, but I feel like I wouldn't have let it get to that point. You know, like you made so many bad choices to get to that point, that moment. Here's my thing is that they were like, I just want to scare her. I don't care. I don't care. You don't need to scare anyone. Amanda was not property. She could not be stolen away. She left of her own volition. That was her decision to make. But even to the point where they go and knock on her door and she says, come back later, that puncture that they went to, they could have like burned off some rage in the pit, like dealt with it and moved on. But they didn't. They went back. There was so many times when like the original like thought of it, say no then. The first time you go to the door, you could be like, hey, she's trying to be an asshole. Just say, we're just going to agree that this isn't going to happen. She could have warned her. Like she could have went to the door and been like, hey, I'm with this girl. I don't really know her. She told us to come try to get you, but we're just going to say that you said you can't come out. If, if she was scared, that was another way she could have played it. Then they could have went to the show and she could have been like, you know what, guys, I'm going to I'm going to go to bed. I'm not feeling great. Even if she was not strong enough to fight back, she could disengage. And the less people that Melinda had to convince to do this with her, she may have chickened out herself. Exactly. And then when they went to the door again, they could have done the same thing. Like at, at so many points, they could have just not. 
you're absolutely right there. So then what they did is they did indeed set her on fire. And then they returned a few minutes later to do it again to make sure she was dead this time. The girls then went to McDonald's for breakfast around 930 in the morning. Tony was horrified and called a friend and told her what happened. Lori dropped Tony and Hope off at their houses, and then she went back home with Melinda. They cleaned the car, and then they went to Melinda's house around 3 p.m. Melinda then got in contact with Amanda and told her what happened, and then arranged to go pick up Amanda. We could deep dive into this whole mess with all these different players, but again, it's just a brief overview. Melinda's friend, Crystal, came over and they told her what happened too. Then they went to go pick up Amanda and bring her back to Melinda's house. They told Amanda the full story. And at first she's like, no, that didn't happen. It's not true. And on some accounts, I see that she was comforting Melinda. And I'm like, this is very weird. I don't know if that's true, but I did see it on a couple different places. To prove that it was true, Lori showed Crystal and Amanda the trunk with the bloody handprints and Shonda's socks. Let's just like take a moment to pause. Someone calls you and says, I killed your new lover. Do you then go with them places? No. No. And it's weird because their relationship is very strange. And there are tons of things online, even now, surrounding Amanda because the family thought it was her fault. Yes. I think that's in part because of the age difference between the two. Yeah. Yeah. But again, she wasn't there. To my knowledge, she didn't know prior. She knew that she had threatened her. And from what I understand, the family knew that this, you know, this girl was no good, being weird, threatening their daughter. So it's it's a terrible, terrible thing that happened. And I don't dismiss anyone involved. But also, it's hard to blame just one kid, you know, like one kid. They're all kids. So now again, we're in January 11th. Shonda's dad noticed that she was missing and called neighbors, friends, anyone he could all morning. Later that morning, Don and Ralph Foley found Shonda's body while they were out quail hunting and the body had been posed. Her legs were spread and her arms were up. And then Shonda's dad and his ex-wife went out around 1.45-ish to file a missing persons report. Earlier that morning at 8.20, Tony had went to the sheriff's office with her parents and told them the story. They were able to confirm later on that the body that they had found matched the person that was missing. It was also confirmed with dental records. Forensic expert Sergeant Curtis Wells, when he was investigating the crime scene, he did notice that it appeared that she had been sexually assaulted as well. It's one of the most horrific cases, especially when you're thinking of young adults, you know, teenagers, young children. Originally, investigators thought that the body was a killing after a drug deal had gone wrong before they knew who it was. Originally, the sharers were excited when the police called because they thought, oh, this must be good news. Witnesses later testified that Lori was obsessed with the occult and the notion of killing someone. She had proposed asking Sharer's ghost during a seance how it felt to die by fire. I guess she had said that to someone, which is absolutely horrific. So police then went to Melinda's house to arrest them and found them sleeping in Melinda's room. Just sleeping. Everything's fine. Normal day. From the account that I had read, the officer that went in, like, slammed open the door and, like, screamed for them to wake up. They were just that mad about what had happened. that They're just in there sleeping peacefully. But so, good. All four girls were charged and were sentenced. We're not going to go through the full trial. But here are some interesting notes about the trial and some things that were happening around that time. 
So in December of 1992, Laurie gave an interview and said, I didn't think she was going to go that far. It wasn't really the fact that I can't believe I'm doing this. It was the fact that I can't believe this is happening. I told her it was stupid. Shonda hugged me. She asked me to not let Melinda do it. She was crying. There wasn't anything I can do. Ugh, that hurts my heart. Yeah. Well, also, it hurts my heart that Shonda begged. But it also was like, don't say there's nothing you could have done. Oh, yeah. Well, that that just pisses me off. But just the fact I'm, I'm pic- picturing just Shonda. I don't care what Lori's doing. Yeah. Especially from Lori. Yeah. Well, and also in this same interview, Lori talks about expecting to be acquitted and that she's like she talks about what she wants to go to college for. Well, she thought she was just going to be let off easily because she was underage. Yes. And so on the 10th of December, Tony entered a plea agreement in exchange for full cooperation. So Melinda also entered into a plea agreement and she testified on behalf of, I believe, Laurie and Hope on behalf for it. But during her sentencing hearing, Shonda's mother, Jackie, said, I can't control my emotions most of the time. And I cry because I want my baby back. I want her home for Christmas this year, but I can't have her. This year, I didn't get to buy Shonda any presents. There are no presents for her under my tree. Melinda has cheated me out of being with my daughter during this life. It is my wish for you that you live your life with memories of her screams and the sight of her burned and mutilated body. I'm not sure who you love most in life, Melinda, whether it be your mother or your father, but I want you to imagine them in the trunk of that car. I want you to imagine the person you love the most begging and screaming for their life. I want you to imagine that person being the person lying on the ground who was burned and mutilated. Maybe then, and I doubt this seriously, you could feel a small portion of the pain our family feels. The proper punishment for Melinda would be to place her in a cell with pictures of Shonda's burned body and force her to continually listen to a a tape of my daughter screaming like she did that night. I hope and pray you remember these words for the rest of your life. May you rot in hell. And so Tony Lawrence was sentenced to 20 years. Laurie Tackett, Melinda Loveless, and Hope Rippey were each sentenced to 60 years. However, none of them served that time. Hope Rippey was released in 2006. Tony Lawrence was released in 2000, which means that it was a little bit less than eight years, I believe. Laurie Tackett was released in 2018 and Melinda was released in 2019. Crazy. And doesn't that make you nervous that someone that could do this to a child? I mean, they were children themselves. Let's be honest. They were they were young, but they could do that to a child. It's just hard to think about. Mm -hmm. So to think about them being out in the world. Or at the very least, like, they all had a partner, but say they were even just present. The fact that you could stand by and watch that happen. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot about Shonda's family after this, too. And there was an entire Dr. Phil episode where he talked to Shonda's family, talked to Amanda, and talked to Hope. And I found many, many clips, but I could not find the entire episode anywhere. At one point, Shonda's family says that Amanda molested her and says that Amanda should have been able to stop it and she did nothing and she deserved to be with the other four girls. It it was an interesting interview to watch and you're just angry watching it at all accounts. You're like, this doesn't have to happen. But on the other end, I'm sure there was more to it and how many times Amanda, you know, warned anyone she claims that she did. Yeah, I do believe that the prison system in part does exist to punish people and for them to be rehabilitated for their crimes. But I also believe that people should serve their sentences. And it's great that you might be a model prisoner. But if you're sentenced to 60 years in prison for a violent crime like this, I think you should serve it. I, I like this isn't talking about like drug offenses. Like you had like pot in your pocket 20 years ago. You shouldn't be in prison for 30 years. I'm talking about like violent, heinous crimes where there is a true victim 
Let's assume the sentencing was in 1993. 27 years. That's how long Melinda served? For taking a life? That's not even half. That's not even half of her sentence. We have, we have harsh sentencing for harsh crimes for a reason. And so there's a story about post-release Melinda training dogs that is interesting, but it doesn't take away from the fact that she didn't even serve half of her sentence. Right. And I will say these programs where they teach inmates to teach dogs is amazing. If you've ever, I, I mean, I'm a dog trainer, so I've heard of and looked into a lot of these programs. So it fascinated me. And that's why I kind of looked into it a little bit more. But yeah, Melinda became a trainer for service dogs for the disabled while incarcerated. At one point, there's this burn victim and he convinced Shonda's mom, Jackie, to watch a video of Melinda training. And she did say that she was compassionate and the training program allowed her to show unconditional love to something and get it back. And then Jackie actually ended up donating a puppy in Shonda's honor to have Melinda train it and become, you know, a helper for the disabled. The puppy was named Angel. I think it's wonderful that Melinda learned how to show compassion, whether it was genuine or not. That's true. Just because you're not hurting animals when being videotaped doesn't mean you're a good person. No, that's fair. That is fair. And I feel like you often hear like, oh, people like should forgive because it, it takes the weight off of them and X, Y, Z. And like, I don't think I could. Some some things are just unforgivable. Yeah, I don't think but I, I never want to be put into that place. But I can't even imagine the level of anger and guilt and hate that you could feel for someone. I would imagine that there's nothing that's going to make the pain of losing a child go away. And especially knowing that this is how their life ended. Just even wrapping my head around, you know, like a mom knowing what their child went through. Yeah. That's a lot of detail that they got. And I think they got that partially because there was four people who were there and witnessed it. And this is just some of it. There was much, much more. Yeah. There's also points where we like kind of summed it up as to not dwell like, yeah, on certain aspects. But I mean, gross, horrible, very gross, very horrible. These are the worst Marys that we could find. And again, we narrowed it down. <laughs> There's more. Yeah, we did narrow it down. A lot of them were poisoners, which I found very interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. So let us know if there's any other names that you think have an aggregate of evil assumed to them, and we may do an episode. Yeah, and we'll definitely be talking about this too in the Bat Bonfire. If you want to join the Bat Bonfire and support the show, you can check out our Patreon link, and you can find that at truecreeps.com. Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening. Thanks for creeping with us. Thank you for listening to Cruel Creep. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 